0: I'm always grateful for the opportunity to speak here. Um, When I think of all the great women and men who have stood in this place to proclaim the word of God, to be among them is a tremendous honor, and I'm very grateful. Uh, Not the least of those people is my Marilyn, who could not be here this morning but did for me what she commonly does when she can't be there when I'm speaking. She takes me by both hands, looks me in the face, and speaks a strong word of encouragement to me. This morning's word was, try not to embarrass the family. <clears throat> so you follow all the instructions, down to the last letter, and it doesn't work. Ever been there? So you start over. You do everything the manual says, and it still won't work, from computer software to programming the TV remote to assembling IKEA furniture. I think we all know the frustration following all the steps correctly, just having it not work out. But the frustration is much deeper and closer to the heart. When you make the right moral choices, you trust God as best you know how, and yet it all seems to turn out all wrong. You choose to trust him against the grain of this world's thinking, and it turns out like nothing you ever expected it would. So it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Does trusting God actually only well, you can't say that aloud, because you might make God look bad. Or worse, you might betray the sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows version of Christianity that's so common in our land. So at 13, your mother tells you it's time to start praying for the man you're going to marry. And one day, while you're away at college, you meet him at church, fine Christian boy from a fine Christian family. One year later, you're engaged two years later, You're married in your home church, and the place is packed with loving faces and filled with heart-deep joy. But it's only three days into the honeymoon when he hits you for the first time. He says he's sorry, and he'll never do it again. He didn't mean it, but it doesn't stop. And now it's four years later. You're sitting in ER with a black eye, swollen lip, three cracked ribs and two children staying at your mother's, and you wonder where it all went wrong, because you did everything right, you trusted God, you followed all the Christian rules, and it all turned out so wrong. Just as it did for Joseph, who did everything right, and ended up in prison. He trusted God explicitly, and look where it gets him. In Genesis 37, God gives him two dreams that paint a picture of him as a great ruler, and since those dreams, he's been betrayed by his brothers, thrown in a pit to die, sold into slavery in a foreign land, and now at the end of chapter 39, he finds himself imprisoned in that land. Aren't you a bit surprised that he's still trusting God? Still following him after all that? I am. After each setback, you'd figure he'd say, well, enough of this. I'm walking on this. Teresa Vivila once told God in prayer, this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. Because this trusting God thing isn't really working out that well for Joseph. Or is it? Let's read the text and find out. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. We want to read through this chapter and highlight a few things. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt to Porfar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, and bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, that it was unmissable that the Lord was with him, And that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes, became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of everything in the household. And he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of Potiphar, the Egyptian, because of Joseph. And the blessings of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord was on everything. In the house and in the field. So he left Joseph's care. He left in Joseph's care everything he had, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate, and that lasts for about eleven years. Time is passing while we read those verses. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. I find that interesting because the word for handsome there is actually a feminine word. In the Quran, they have the Joseph story, and he is he's kind of a cross between. Brad Pitt, and Jude Law. And um, they use the same word to describe him that's used to describe the beauty of Rachel. Anyway, in the Quran, uh, Potiphar's wife has some friends over and they're peeling oranges with knives. And Joseph walks by and they start to cut their fingers off. Makes interesting reading. They're so spellbound by him. They are just captured by him. So that's who he is. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the household. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one's greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. The old saying is opportunity knocks but once, but Temptation leans on the doorbell. Every day, she bugged him about it. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And the Quran has a different version of that, which is also interesting, but I'll pass that for now. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to him, this Hebrew has been brought... has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. Surprisingly, the servants heard her call, but did not hear the screams. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out. And she kept the cloak beside her until her master came home. She told him the story. And we drop down to verse 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him favor and kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden did the same thing the Potiphar did, put him in charge of everything. Verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything that he did. This is the word of God, and we believe it. You can do your Christian best, and things can still turn out bad. Sometimes circumstances or people that are beyond our control can undermine the very best choices that we make. You can trust God completely, it seems, and life can still work out unlike anything you might have expected. So the question that's begged is, where is God? Where is God in this kind of unbalanced, wacky equation where you trust Him, but it doesn't turn out like you think it ought to? Genesis 39 answers and says, He is with you. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 21, verse 23... The Lord was with Joseph. The Bible only has to say something once for it to be true. And we're told five times that God is with Joseph. Everywhere Joseph goes, God goes with him to bless him, strengthen him, give him favor in the eyes of those who seemed to have control over his life, a slave master and a prison warden. And even when the outcomes of his trust were not what he expected, God was still with him and God was the one who was actually in control. That must mean that even when our trust of God brings outcomes that we never expected, God is still with us. He's with us in the shadows, in the hard places, even in the desert times, when his refreshing presence seems to be only a distant memory. God is with us and for us. And the life of Joseph reminds us today, as fresh as your coffee this morning, that God does not ignore the trust of his children, nor does he abandon them in hard times or hard places. He shows up. He is present to our lives, even when we cannot sense his presence. He's writing out the lines of the story of our life, even when we cannot trace his hand. As I observe a kingdom life these days, it seems to me that when it comes to trusting God, which is doing the truth, making choices that honor him and his word, when it comes to trusting God, we tend to be looking for the spiritual Tylenol effect. We want immediate results. That if I trust God today, then by tomorrow, all I trust him for will come to pass. And when that doesn't happen, we think, well, so much for trusting God. Dr. Ellsworth Callis and I share an affection for a certain poet, Colleen McDonnell, Benedictine monk from Minnesota, who began writing poetry at age 76. And there's a verse in the Catholic canon, The Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 11, verse 22, and it reads, Quickly... God causes his blessing to flourish. Quickly, God causes his blessing to flourish. Killing was reading that and said, oh, not so fast here. And he wrote on that. He reflected at the time. That's not my experience. You are not God at the ready. And he included that line in his poem, which is appropriately titled, Swift Lord, You Are Not, (laughs) from the book of the same name. Now, do you find God to be swift? I don't. In fact, i found that trusting God seldom runs on my timetable. The results of trusting God seldom suit our timelines or our calendar. So I've learned over the years to take God off the clock. I take God off of my clock. And when I've tried to give him room and time, it is remarkable how he responds to our trust in his time. Still, we tend to judge the effectiveness of trusting God by immediate results rather than by ultimate or cumulative results. Joseph trusted God and spent 13 years in one of two conditions, a slave or a prisoner. It took 13 years, the average stay for a Ph.D. student at Wilmore. (laughs) 13 years for his future to unfold from God's hand. It seems, doesn't it, that building a life of faith is the work of a lifetime. And it's over a lifetime, not a semester, that the fruit of trusting God emerges. And Do take note of this. We should be careful not to discount the measure of trust Joseph had in God just because we know how the story ends. We turn a few pages and we find he's the prime minister of Egypt. We think, well, that's easy for him to trust God back then. He ends up being in, living in a palace. But for all he knows at the time, his life story ends at the end of Genesis 39. In prison. He's in prison and for all he knows, he's there for good. He can no more see what's on the next page in our Bible or in the next chapter of the story of his life than you or I could see what's on the next page or chapter of ours. He has to trust that the one who holds the book that is his life knows what he's doing as his story unfolds. And that's a very big step of trust based on very little evidence. Because think about it what real evidence does Joseph have to base his trust in God upon? I mean, let's begin. He's got the example of his father, Jacob, whose name means deceiver. Some example of godly trust he is. He's the manipulative schemer who tries to create his own future and creates only a dysfunctional world for his family. Well, there's the stories his father told him about how God was going to make Jacob's tribe into a great nation. (laughs) joseph has got to think, well, some great nation this is. And it's not much of a rewarding journey when you're spending it as a slave or a prisoner. So what's he got left to go on? What is he rooted distrust in? Two faded dreams of a teenage boy that seemed to say to him at the time, God's going to make you a ruler someday. Well, how's that working out for you, Joseph? When you've been a slave in Egypt for 11 years, such dreams seem like pipe dreams. When it comes to evidence for trusting God, he's got very little to go on. In contrast to us, think of the evidence we have to go on. We've got the Bible for a start, the written record of hundreds and hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, hundreds and hundreds of answered prayers, thousands of kept promises. We have the objective divine record of God's faithfulness and watchfulness over his people, his power and his justice, his grace and his kindness, his mercy and his love, his compassion and his concern. Given this, we should never be afraid to trust an unknown future to such a well-known God. But there's more. We have models of trust that are so much better than Jacob. I don't know we have a man like Joseph. We have generations of godly women and men whose lives inspire us to trust God. We have 2,000 years of church history of seeing trust in God vindicated again and again. And then we have our own clear personal experience being born again by the Spirit of God, transformed and indwelt by God Himself. God the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And yet having all of that Just have some sparkling temptation stroll by our hearts, and the internal debate begins. Am I going to trust God now and do the truth that I know, or will I follow my old defaults and indulge myself? There shouldn't even be a debate, should there? Well, that's too convicting. Let's move on. If you have a sense of disillusionment this morning about trusting God, that it actually works, that might be a good thing. Because if we're disillusioned, it means we have believed an illusion. And one of the most common illusions or flawed understandings of what we think trusting God should look like comes when we buy into this culture's broken moral premise, that immediate gratification is of higher value than long-term fulfillment. And on behalf of the generation of boomers in America who gave this culture that premise, I wish to apologize. We made it so that immediate gratification became a higher value than long-term fulfillment. And not just a higher value, but immediate gratification is my right. We have what Eugene Peterson would term idolatrous expectations. We so commonly think like Potiphar's wife. In essence, my needs, whatever they are, become my rights. My needs become my rights. Grease that up, slide it into a Christian worldview, and simply put, I am entitled to get the outcome I want when I trust God. So think about that. When our trust of God is tied to our sense of entitlement, we've just moved from trusting God to trying to manipulate God. But well, the moral compass like that is in an Indian wonder we so often find ourselves lost and adrift when it comes to trusting God, which begs the question, do we have the courage to be committed cultural atheists, to say this culture cannot deliver for me when only God can deliver for me? And I'm going to stop, I'm going to disabuse myself of the notions and the illusions that the culture has pressed into my Christian faith. And we'll return with a heart filled with a passion for scriptural Christianity. Because can you imagine how the Bible would have read if Joseph thought that his needs were his rights? If he makes the wrong choice and ends up having intimate relationships, an intimate relationship with Potiphar's wife, the first thing he loses is his intimacy with God. But you and I know that. Because we've experienced it. The last time we said yes to Potiphar's wife. Then he ends up, if he says yes to his needs, treats his needs like his rights, he ends up a slave forever in Potiphar's of herself, manipulated by a manipulative woman. He exchanges servant of God for slavery to her. Write this down. Choose your master wisely. makes all the difference in the world in your journey. And then for Joseph, there's never becoming a ruler, never saving his family, no role in the preservation of God's people. And all the dreams God has given him die. And God has to find himself another Joseph. Have you ever thought that when we make our needs our rights, we might get what we want, but might very well lose our best dreams and our best tomorrow, and perhaps lose them both forever? Just asking. Probably started out subtly, but after having 11 years of Brad Pitt and Jude Law around as a slave, Potiphar's wife starts to brazenly presume. There's nothing coy or delicate about it now. Just bold, unvarnished sin. Come sleep with me. Yet Joseph stands his ground. He knows he should not break trust with Potiphar. But that trust issue is only secondary. More importantly, he knows he should not break trust with his God. Notice verse 9. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In saying this, Joseph reminds all of us that our sin is always primarily against God and only secondarily against the person we sit against. What did David say? Against you, O Lord, you alone have I sinned. That removes all room for the rationalization of our sin. As in, well, Potiphar will never know, she's a needy woman, I'm just eating my own base. All that stuff is rubbish. If sin is primarily against God, all rationalizations for our sin fall short. Circumstances change. God does not. That means there's nothing relative about sin. Sin is usually pretty clear-cut. Verse 10 implies Joseph's done his best over the years to avoid getting caught in that situation of maximum temptation, maximum opportunity, minimum resistance. He knows it's going to be a moral disaster. But despite his best efforts, she forces the issue, she grabs him by the cloak, and he runs out the door in his underwear. I don't know what his underwear was like, but he ran out the door in his underwear. As the old saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. He rejects her, so she plots to get even. Isn't it curious that it was his cloak that got him in trouble with his brothers, and now his cloak gets him in trouble with this woman? I think it was Leon Cass who pointed out that the laws of the Egyptians' antiquity state that the sentence in that day for rape or attempted rape was death. And for adultery or attempted adultery, it was being beaten a thousand times with a wooden rod. Essentially the same thing, death. Few, if any, survived. But Joseph is neither put to death nor beaten, and you have to wonder why. But the answer is actually right there in the text. It goes back to Joseph's trust in God. And it's that trust that actually saves him when he's framed by Potiphar's wife. Here is where we see how trusting God ultimately works out in a faithful, trusting life. We all know that our strongest relationships in life are rooted and built on trust, not performance or status or money or gifts, but trust. And Potiphar trusted Joseph. Why? Because of who Joseph was. The unmissable presence of God in Joseph's life that compelled Potiphar to trust him. That's what what held that relationship together. Who Joseph was, was a product of his trust in God. Joseph's trust of God was the handmaiden to the presence of God in his life, and the presence of God in his life compelled Potiphar to trust Joseph. So all Potiphar owned, he entrusted to Joseph's care. Think about that. Joseph had the keys to the chariot, The bank account numbers, all the internet passwords, he ran the household. Essentially, Potiphar gave the running of his life to a Hebrew slave. Now that's trust. And that's been going on for 11 years. So what do you think that does for the relationship between Joseph and Potiphar? They're in deep together. So much so that when the accusation of attempted adultery is made, Potiphar's angry, but he's uncertain. And he's certainly not convinced, because he knows his wife, her passions and appetites, he also knows what she is like. And I also think he has seen this behavior in her before. Now, why do I think that? Because the primary meaning of the word translated official or officer in describing Potiphar is the Hebrew word most commonly translated eunuch. Saris. Don't be impressed, you could look it up. As in many ancient cultures, The emasculation of male servants who were close to Pharaoh's court was common practice. Pharaoh is a deity, and you have to protect the royal line. It went with the job. Just think the Ethiopian eunuch in the court of Queen Candace in Acts 8. So knowing that, how are we meant to read this episode? Knowing that changes the marital landscape, doesn't it? Knowing that, do you think this is the first slave she's ever flirted with? Potiphar knows what his wife is capable of. And he sees all of that and what she claims that has happened. And he sees all of that in reference to what he knows and trusts about Joseph. Could it be that he trusts Joseph's moral character more than his wife's word? I believe he does. I believe he just can't bring himself to fully buy his wife's story. Joseph's trust of God becomes the foundation of that kind of decision. So yes, he banishes Joseph from his household. He has to got a safe face with his wife and his community and his own household. But he could have had him put to death or beaten to death. Instead, Joseph ends up, not in some common prison, but in the king's prison with the white-collar criminals, like the ancient equivalent of being in jail with all the Wall Street guys cleaning flower beds and watching HBO. It was Solomon who said, he who walks in integrity walks securely. When you walk with committed trust in God, God has your back. And while the dividends of trusting God seem to pay off later than we might like them to, they do pay off. Trusting God really does work. Trust God and he will preserve both you and your reputation. You can count on that. Joseph did and his life and reputation were preserved. And if you're at a place this morning where you're stalled in your journey, And you've got some issue of trust with God and you can't bring yourself to trust him. You're stuck at a corner called don't walk and don't walk. That great theologian, Ernest Hemingway, once said, the best way to find out if you can trust someone is to trust them. If you're going to move off that stalled position, you're going to need to trust God. And if you've trusted God and you're here this morning and it hasn't worked out for you, you find yourself in a hard place, you did everything right, seems it turned out wrong, know this, God still has your back. God has no more abandoned you than he did Joseph. He'll watch over you and work to redeem your circumstance. He will give you favor in the most unlikely circumstances with the most unlikely people, even slave masters, even prison wardens. Love, always trusts. Paul says, keep trusting. And just as Joseph's dreams are still alive and in play because of his trust in God, as you trust God, so are yours. God's best dreams for you, given by God, are still available to you. They're still in play. Your continued trust in God is holding them in place. There are possibilities that still exist. Because of his trust in God, Joseph's last chapter is not 39, and neither is yours. Let's pray. Kind Father, there's a word that's uh, hanging in the air this morning that your spirit is working with, and he wants to seal that to people's hearts. So I pray, Father, in our hearts, there would be open doors that the Spirit might take that word and plant it firmly and deeply in us, whatever it needs to be, whatever it happens to be. Father, I pray that you can move people past disillusionment and trusting of you. I pray that you can move them out that place that they're stalled. I pray you can move them past the places of disappointment they've experienced and find new grace to trust you in fresh ways. Because, Father, all of our future hangs on that trust of you. Give your people courage to trust, I pray.